0: Music. It brings us all together. Whether it's hip-hop, jazz, classical, soul, funk, new age, heavy metal, punk rock, dance, folk, disco, ska. No matter what side of the train track the musician's from, they have stories. This is And Now You Know. Musicians have the best stories, and you'll get them here. We'll talk music history, stories from the road, and hear about some of the best moments in music. Welcome to And Now You Know. Now your host, Tim Fortner. Uh,
1: At the top of all of that, I don't mean to be name-dropping. I'm just trying to answer your question. Absolutely.
2: That's what I want.
1: But at the, the top of the whole package... This is unquestionably uh, my four years with Neil Diamond. Uh, Neil Diamond is the greatest guy in the world.
2: So you just heard Bill Sinkey talk about the man who he has uh, really enjoyed the most talking about, and that's Neil Diamond. Let me give you a little background, and he will tell you more. Bill sin has played with the Coasters, the Drifters, Herman's Hermits, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Bay City Rollers, Melissa Manchester, and now you're about to hear all about it. Right here, and now you know. Here's Bill Sinke. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. If you have never heard of this man, you are in for a treat. His name is Bill Sincay. Bill, thanks for being with us today. And for our listeners who don't know the man, who is Bill Sinke?
1: Well, is that a question towards me, Tim?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess you can consider that. Who is Bill Sinke and where did your interest in music come from?
1: Well, uh, essentially, <clears throat> Bill Sinke is kind of a uh, a simple person and I, I like music and pizza. I have a woman who loves me. That would be, you know, most of my life. But the uh, the basic thing is this. I'm, I'm 64 years old. I knew at five years old, literally five years old, that I wanted to be a musician. Um, as to exactly why, I could probably say what a lot of musicians my age say, and that is the Beatles and the Ed Sullivan show just, it, it not only changed musicians, it changed the world. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, As I grew a little bit older, and I mean just a little bit older, I was about nine years old when my older brother went into the service, and he left a guitar at home, and I started tinkering with it. I didn't take any lessons. Uh, I have never taken a lesson. I don't know how to read a note of music. Uh, I sing, I play guitar and bass for a living, but I've never taken a lesson of any kind. And when I was about uh, nine years old, my brother left a guitar behind. I'm left-handed. So I picked up the right-handed guitar and flipped it upside down. Now, for those of you that might know a little bit about guitar, no matter whether you play left-handed or right-handed, the fat string, the thick E string, should be on the top. I play left-handed, meaning I'm strumming with my left hand, and the and E6 the e string, which is the fat one, is on the bottom. So I'm actually playing left-handed and upside down. Jimi Hendrix did not play that way, nor does Paul McCart. Uh, there are a few people out there that do it, but I play upside down and left hand, but I'm completely self-taught. Um, so I tinkered around a little bit. And then when I was 19, uh, a friend of mine had a little club gig, and he asked if I play guitar, and I said, yeah. I didn't really, but I said, yeah. And the bigger question was, he said, do you sing? And I said, yes, but I didn't really sing either. So I had about, and this is true. I mean, I know this sounds like I'm being tongue in cheek, but it's very true. And the good thing was he was a big beetle fan, And from a child, I knew all the Beatles songs. I knew the, I knew the harmonies. I knew the bass lines, even though I didn't really know what a bass guitar was, but I knew the bass lines. And it, that's just the way I listened to music. And uh, so I, I did my first professional gig, making $25 uh at 19 years old um yeah i guess i was 19 i might have even been 18 and i haven't stopped since
2: so from there what was your first um what was your first like uh takeoff um I guess what propelled you into the rock music scene? What, what's, what, first of all, do you like rock mostly or, or are there other styles that you'd rather play or what's your, what's your take on that?
1: I think when you boil it all down, uh, first of all, there's so many different, um, so many, not only different levels of music, but there are so, so many different styles. Uh, when I was growing up, there was jazz and there was country and there was rock. And then rock turned into pop rock and acid rock and heavy metal. Uh, then came not only hip hop, but, you know, it was rap and then hip hop and then trip hop and then trance and EDM. And uh, Country. Country right now is completely different than it was 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So having said that, when you ask what my favorite is, I am a 60s and 70s guy. And the reason I talk about the decades rather than the style of music is most of the stuff that came out in those times, I loved. If it was a little bit of a country flair, I loved it because it was on AM radio. Any, anybody out there old enough to remember AM radio will know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You turned on the radio and you heard Frank Sinatra, Ronnie Millsap, the Bee Gees, the Beatles, and ABBA, all on the same radio station. Mm-hmm. And Jim Croce, right? So. I I love all of it. Um, I am partial to uh, Neil Diamond music uh, in in my later years, uh, for good reason. So I have always loved any style that had, essentially, if the song had an intro and a big chorus and a guitar solo or a sax solo, if it was structured in three and a half minutes, it resonated with me.
2: So, <clears throat> would you agree, or what are your thoughts? Uh, and and I've talked to several artists about this. Um, you know, Billy Vera mainly it, when he puts together a group. Uh, the way I look at it is that it, it, as you said, it's the '60s and '70s style per se, or or, or genre or era, whatever you want to call it, but. It's almost that now folks want to get away from the actual instruments and play uh, synthesizers or something that sounds like a bass or sounds like a a drum, you know, And, and I think that's why. People are still flocking to, as you said, uh, or, or they don't now, obviously, with Neil Diamond, but Chicago, uh, uh, you know, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and Earth, Wind, and Fire, all the 60s and 70s, because they play those instruments live. Would you agree with that?
1: I absolutely agree. And it's funny that you mentioned the people you mentioned. First of all, Billy Vera.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I've met, I just saw him a couple of months ago in los angeles Uh, i don't know him well we've met several times over the years billy vera and i used to play the same club uh in Dobbs ferry new york or in hastings new york rather which is about 20 miles north of new york city
3: Mm -hmm.
1: i used to see him with a six-piece band that would set up on a stage that was about the size of uh, you know your kitchen Mm -hmm. and uh Billy Vera makes it happen. Mm-hmm. That guy, he's phenomenal. All the other bands you're talking about, it's real instruments. They came up that way. They came up having to tune a guitar without having a guitar tuner. You know, they they came up having to write a song on a notebook, not not a you know not a computer. They came up having to rehearse in a garage, and we have to be done before Dad pulls in after work and and you know pulls the car in. Mm-hmm. So everything about it was organic and natural and you had a deadline, right? We have to rehearse. We have to rehearse before eight o'clock. We have to do this by then. We, that's all gone these days. We have virtual everything. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to sound like a, a bitter old man, but I think technology might've gone a little bit too far. Uh, we always kind of make the joke. Those of us that are older, and we talk about the difference between it, first it's a tool, then it's a crutch. Mm-hmm. The idea of fixing a couple of notes on your voice because you did a great first take and you don't want to have to redo it. You just want to fix those two words that you missed or that one line that you sang the wrong words. No, I understand that. But having somebody who cannot sing and fixing every note and st- they call that in the box. You know, the whole band is in your laptop. You're not really playing a drum or a, or a bass or a saxophone. I, I think that that has, uh, I think that's worn out its welcome. And mm-hmm. that's why people, even younger people, are going back to hearing somebody play a guitar. And you know what? Yeah, maybe it's a little out of tune and maybe he forgot the words, but at least it's the guy doing it. And uh, I think that's coming back. I think it's full circle. That's coming back to be a little more prevalent.
2: I, I agree with you. You know, you mentioned uh, even country uh, isn't what it used to be a few years ago. I think that uh, country music or the musicians have seen uh, what's selling, you know, instead of actually going to the roots, they're seeing what's selling and and nothing against country music artists, because, I mean, you've got to make a living, but, uh, you know, they see what 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 everybody's buying. And and that's just the way the, uh, that's the way it turns. That's, you know, it's just the way it goes, but you're right. You're, you're all of your Hank Williams and your, your older styles, your older artists, they have kind of gone to the byway. And, and now we're just, uh, I think that if, I think if people started buying other uh, uh, music, in a different style and just really didn't go for that anymore. They would do would probably be a, uh, another transition per se.
1: Yeah. I think uh, sometimes the word we're looking for is homogenized, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't mean that to be disrespectful, but I'm honestly, I do have my feelings about it. Sure. Um, there was a time and again, this is the 64-year-old. So if you have 15-year-olds in the audience, they're probably looking at me like I'm a dinosaur. Um, but there was a time when you would you would turn on the radio, and even though it was rock music, there was a distinct difference in style between The Who and Deep Purple. And I'm a huge fan of both.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: even though it was acoustic guitars, there was a big difference between James Taylor and someone like Harry Chapin or Jim Croce, as I mentioned before, and they were all great. Uh, they weren't incredibly divergent. It wasn't, it wasn't punk versus gospel. It mm-hmm. was, you could, you could move it three clicks to the right or left and say, Hey, this guy's a little more poetic. Uh, Joni Mitchell used, you know, alternate tunings that were just so beautiful. Um, Linda Ronstadt was kind of like a powerhouse. Mm-hmm. You had all these different flavors kind of branches off the same tree going back to what i was saying before it was all pop music in the sense that it was three and a half minute songs with a chorus that everybody could sing if you never heard the song before by the second chorus you could sing along Uh, um, we've lost a lot of that Mm -hmm. i do think it's coming back Uh, i have younger people in my life who point me in the right direction so i don't sound like the the old curmudgeon who wishes we're back in 1975. But what it, Tim, I think what it does is eventually it does take the heart and soul out of it, which actually affects the songwriting. Uh, That might sound like two different tracks, but the idea of technology being so much of what it is, I think lyrically we lose a lot of the poetry because what happens in a lot of pop music today is okay. We got that first uh, chorus and verse hit save. Let's move that to the end of the song. Okay. We're done. There's no development of the song. There's no development of the heartache. There's no development of the realization, uh, the storytelling. It's kind of cut and paste. And I think, um, I think it, it actually goes from the technology it changes the instrumentation, it changes the song, and then it actually changes the essence of the song, because people look at it and they're looking at a clock saying, it has to be this long, uh, forget about that last verse. I've seen it happen myself, I've been there when it happens, it's just, they're cutting and pacing, and that bothers me too, because you literally are limiting what the artist is trying to say. And I, that's unforgivable to me.
2: (laughs) Sure. Sure. Absolutely. So, so Bill, I understand that you play bass. What about any other instruments? Do you play anything else?
1: Uh, I play guitar and I sing. Um, What's I, I, I kind of sheepishly say I play guitar. And the reason that is, is, uh, I have always been blessed with a tremendous amount of talent uh, around me. I don't mean my personal talent. I play with five or six guitar players that I really could say every one of them I think is the greatest guitar player in the world. Um, I've had the pleasure of, in two weeks time, playing with Albert Lee, if you know who Albert Lee is. (laughs) I played with Albert Lee. And Lawrence Juber, who was Paul McCartney's guitar player in Wings. Uh, in the same, you know, in the same couple of weeks, I've, uh, I've done records with Wadi Wachtel, who plays with Stevie Nicks and James Taylor and on and on. So you have all these different flavors. And I look at them and I, I hesitate to call myself a guitar player, but I do play guitar. Uh, I do a bit of producing which means I don't really play percussion or keyboards but I know enough to communicate with a with a real percussionist or a real keyboard player so essentially my instruments are bass guitar and vocals
2: sure now, <clears throat> when I was doing some research on you, I, I found a particularly interesting take on uh, your piano playing. I was looking at your teaser video for your Groove program, yeah, and you really described your piano talent, and I enjoyed that description. So, for those who haven't seen it, explain that.
1: Yes, um, if I can, if I can take the whole the whole piece. Uh, one of the things I did was I put together. It's essentially a a masterclass, if you will. And rather than it being on guitar playing or saxophone playing or production or acting, I put it on the whole working class musician. How do you get from A to B? How do you write a song? How do you record? How do you book a gig? And I sat at a piano and we did a a full-blown video and I'm dressed in a a jacket and it's kind of bold and big. And I'm looking right in the camera and I say very often I sit at the piano Hmm. and I just let my fingers ramble and I'm and sometimes it sounds a little something like this. Now, if I put the pause button right there, right, that's when every great piano player just plays this amazingly beautiful piece and you just go, (laughs) wow, this is coming right out of his head. And he didn't even rehearse this. And I start banging on the piano with fists and then I put my nose and physically put my face on the piano. The point is, I come up and I say, that's what it sounds like when I play. You know why? Because I'm not a piano
2: player. Right.
1: So if I'm going to have a piano piece on a song that I wrote and I write all the time. I'm not going to play one note at a time and feed it into a computer. I'm going to hire a piano player. Um, The bigger point from that is even if I put it in one note at a time and there's all kinds of words like quantizing and things that essentially computers do Mm -hmm. to make it sound like a piano piece, it's still not going to have the feel. It's still not going to have the breathing of a real piano player playing it. So I went to ridiculous lengths to show... (laughs) <laughs> that I'm not a piano player and if you're not a piano player go hire one
2: and and I get that that that's why I wanted to that's why I wanted to throw that out there because I, it just really uh, made sense you know and so give us the highlights of your storied musical career what artists have you written for produced and performed with i I know this would take a long time for everybody who you've ever worked with but just give us some highlights
1: yeah i know i'd I'd love to a matter of fact if if it's okay uh just talking about that groove program uh if anybody wants to go to my website which is Mm -hmm. bill dot b-i-l-l-c-i-n-q-u-e.com the groove program and snippets of it. There's also my book, which is The Amazing Adventures of a Marginally Successful Musician. There's the hardcover, uh, you know, the the hard copy book. There is an ebook, and I am presently working on the audio book, which should be out in about two months, which is far more uh inclusive because it does now include some of my stuff from the Neil Diamond years, which You know, I was able I was able to do that. Now, when you're saying about my highlights,
2: let's let's back up for just a second. Sure. Because you've already touched on one of my questions that are that's on down. You're not only a musician, but as you said, you're also an author. Tell us about that book. Let's touch on that.
1: Sure. Well, the book actually incorporates a lot of what we're talking about. The book um, started with I'd always wanted to write a book. Mm hmm. Uh, right around, I think, 2010, I wrote a book. It took a long time. And the first thing a publisher told me was, the title has to be short and catchy. You know, it has to be called Midnight or, you know, New Horizon or something. <laughs> and just me being me, I came up with the longest, most convoluted title I could think of. And I called it The Amazing Adventures of a Marginally Successful Musician. Now, I don't know if that maybe has undone me. Maybe I would have sold more copies if it was a shorter title. But I chronicled some of what we're talking about from from my first gig. I talk about my best gig, my worst gig. I talk about doing corporate gigs. Uh, I played actual arenas playing for big corporations where we were really playing to 10,000 people. Uh, I played backyard parties. I've played the biggest arenas in the world. And I've played in, I've literally played in basements. I've played, uh, I'll give you listeners a little tip here. Uh, My very first gig was in a whorehouse. And I hesitate to use that word. I don't mean to be vulgar, but it really was. I didn't know it was at the time. And you can read that story, you know, Um, as I went through uh, playing clubs and then weddings and then doing some recordings. And then I moved into uh, an area where I could place music on television. For those of your fans who are familiar with the young and the restless, if you've Mm -hmm. been watching the young and the restless for the last 25 years, you've probably heard some of my music. Um, Usually when someone's, Uh, swimming in shark infested waters with their twin brother, they didn't know they had, you know, these ridiculous plots that they have in the soap operas. I love them, actually. (laughs) I've had a lot of music on a bunch of the soap operas. Um, And so the book chronicles all of that. It's, it's, as I say, in the book, it's part how to part history. I have little cartoons that I drew and drawn ridiculous stick figure cartoons. I have some very serious moments there is hopefully what some people will consider comedy, but it's everything about every, every part of a gig about writing songs, recording songs, firing the band, quitting the band. Uh, it's something like 115 chapters and nothing is longer than maybe seven pages. A lot of them are two and three pages because of that, because I wanted to hit so many points. So that's pretty much the book. And again, the book is available. And it's coming out as an audiobook book uh, probably in February. So that would be on
2: your website and probably Amazon.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The website, it, it will definitely be on a, uh, on a on the website. The website is easier for me to control because if you buy a book through my website, you get the book. Right. Sadly, I've had a lot of problems with the in-between people. They call me three weeks later and say, hey, I ordered the book. I never got it. Mm-hmm. or i got it really late or it was 8 dollars more. So if it, if you go to my website it usually works out well.
2: That th- th- tell us tell us again your your website. It's it's obviously pretty easy. It's the
1: billsink and and
2: Exactly and spell the synK. It's
1: bill is b i l l c i n q u e.com.
2: There you go. So jumping back now the highlights of your musical career, um, sure. the artists that you've that you've worked with,
1: um, some of them kind of overlap. Some of them I'm still working with. Uh, what happened is, I had the great fortune of working with people like the Coasters and the Drifters, uh, Herman's Hermits, um, but when I took a step into the real British invasion stuff. I remember playing our first gig in Las Vegas with Jerry and the pacemakers. Mm -hmm. Now I remember seeing Jerry on the Ed Sullivan show. I physically bought those records. I was seven and eight years old that that was part of the British invasion. Jerry and the pacemakers did "Ferry cross the Mersey." Um, It it was a huge song. Uh, Don't let the sun catch you crying. Jerry also Jerry's version of you'll never walk alone was the one that they played all the big soccer matches. And I remember walking out on stage and saying, Holy cow, I'm a pacemaker. This is unbelievable. I mean, you know, I'm not too cool to say this is unbelievable. Um, So that was just huge. And then we used to do these package shows with Denny Lane who is still a great friend of mine, Denny Lane, who from not only Wings, but Denny Lane was the original singer in the Moody Blues. Go Now was Denny's signature. And to play that every night and to look over and say, here's Denny Lane. I'm playing bass and singing with him. I heard the song on the radio a million times when I was a kid. And not only do I get to sing with him, afterwards we go have a burger. Like it was was surreal that I could be in that. Um, So... I also got the chance to play with the guys from the Hollies and the, uh, the uh, Bay City Rollers. <laughs> I forget about them sometime, but they had some big records. Right. Uh, I recently just got the with Melissa Manchester. Uh, I did one of those rock and roll cruises just earlier this year and she was brilliant. Uh, at the top of all of that, I don't mean to be name dropping. I'm just trying to answer your question. Absolutely.
2: That's what I want.
1: But at the, the top of the whole package, this is unquestionably uh, my four years with neil diamond uh neil diamond is the greatest guy in the world in addition to having the greatest songbook and being a brilliant performer and if you look him up and you see the records that he sold and how many number ones and the rock and roll hall of fame and the kennedy honors and on and on the greatest guy i could tell more stories about neil being an unbelievable human being than I could about how many records you sold. That was the crowning achievement for me.
2: What how did it feel? And this this just came to my mind while you're while you were discussing, how did it feel to when the song uh They're Coming to America, a Neil Diamond hit? mm mm-hmm. How did it feel to just start playing that bass the first time, just giving that bass groove, uh, opening up for they're coming to America? Boom, 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 boom.
1: When we would do that song, we had a huge screen behind us. I mean, Neil's light show was second to none. And as we were going through the song, the American flag would come up. Now, I'm trying to explain what it means to go from great to even greater to greatest, to even better than greatest, whatever scale you want to put it on. Mm -hmm. You walk into a Neil Diamond show from the first song, it's bedlam, right? It's, it's, it's either people are rocking or when he plays his love song, you hear everybody sigh at the same time, right? We would get to that as soon as we started the song. Coming to America, people are up and dancing and singing and clapping and then partway through the song we would fly the american flag as if it couldn't get any louder or deeper or more emotional it just went through the roof during that song all over the world all over the world didn't matter if we were in germany or australia or if we were in cincinnati it went through the roof and i have very very fond memories of that that's
2: that's there's no words to describe that i'm sure talking about your concerts uh for the listeners who don't know what's a typical day for a concert or is there a typical day Uh, does each concert require different things or does it vary from venue to venue
1: well it it, a lot of it depends on the band and the size of the concert so for instance um if i were to put if i were to say the mid-level concert meaning the theaters of 500 to 1,500 people. First of all, they're so much fun because you actually see the people and you meet them. Um, A typical day might be driving in a minivan for five hours, jumping out, running into a hotel, taking a quick shower, or maybe not, (laughs) and going to a sound check, which is Again, I'm trying to make sure that it's clear to people who maybe don't know about this stuff. A sound check is when you get to the theater early, you get on stage, you set up your equipment, you make sure everything works. You do a little bit of a rehearsal, um, that kind of thing. You do the sound check, you go backstage, you you know brush your hair and maybe have a, a corn dog and then we're hitting the stage. After that, we do a meet and greet, which is where you come out and meet the audience and thank them. Even though they're thanking you, we're absolutely thanking them. Sometimes we sign some autographs if we have any merchandise, like in my case, if I was selling the book. Somebody else is selling a personal CD in addition to the band that we're playing for. So, for instance, if we're working with the searchers, which I have many times, um, there would be searchers, photos and CDs, but then they'd let us sell our own gear you know, Mm -hmm. because we were there. Um, That's a typical day for that kind of thing. A typical concert with someone like Neil Diamond is quite different. Uh, We would be in the hotel. They'd pick us up at about three o'clock. We'd go over to the venue, which is an arena. Neil didn't play any clubs or theaters. We were playing full-blown arenas. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: We'd go in. We would do a sound check for about an hour and a half. We would stop, go have an incredible meal because we had our own catering. So we didn't have to run down the street and grab a pizza. We had the most incredible meal.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: We have about an hour to chill, and then we'd hit the stage. And I usually use I used to use that hour in between to go out and talk to fans. I made it a point every single show to go up to the uh, the wheelchair section, um, the people that a lot of them were veterans of of some kind of war.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, other people were maybe elderly. Uh, and I would go up and thank them uh, personally. I would go up and talk to them and shake their hands and and they would want to take pictures with me. And I would think, well, I'm the one being, it's my honor to be here for you. Um very, very often in those in those instances I would get very emotional because I'm looking at somebody in a wheelchair. And we're in Chicago in February, and I'm looking at going, This person got here in the snow and the rain in a wheelchair. Oh no, no, I'm gonna thank you. <laughs> I'm going to thank you for coming. I can't do this without you. We can't do this without you guys here. So that's how I use that hour before Showtime. So Showtime was. You're on autopilot. Show, showtime, you, you know, we do our thing. Um, if I may. I would like to tie this up with one of the other things we talked about. <clears throat> we would do sometimes a two hour and 15 minute show with me. We did a lot. We didn't take any breaks. There was no intermission. There was no real costume change. Neil wouldn't he wouldn't leave the stage for three songs or anything like that. Um, He was the singer. There was nobody else singing leads and giving him a break. We did that every night and never, ever, ever had tracks running with us. So when you're talking about what I mean by tracks, is there was no synthetic music coming off the stage. If you heard voices, it was our background singers, Maxine and Julia Waters, two of the most famous background singers in the world. If you heard a guitar solo, it was Richard Bennett, my dear friend who's a big producer in Nashville, um, And down down the list, you heard what was coming off the stage. You weren't hearing anything pre-recorded. There aren't many bands out there. I'm going to be very kind when I say it this way. There aren't many bands playing arenas who aren't using some help.
2: I I agree. I I get it. I totally agree. Switching gears, what television and big screen shows have you been involved in? I know you mentioned uh, Young and the Restless. Was that it earlier?
1: Yeah. yeah, um, When it comes to the soap opera stuff, um, Young and the Restless, General Hospital, uh, there are a couple of shows I don't even think they're on anymore. Things like Passions. There's a great show uh, that was on uh, NBC, which was called once it was Once Upon a Time. I had a little blip in that. Uh, my crowning achievement, um, and I'm saying this as sarcastically as I can, is I'm sure you've all uh, you've all stood in line for the premiere of the 1988 release. Phantom of the Mall. (laughs) (laughs) This movie, um, I have to go in in kind of reverse order. I got a screen credit for it, which is fantastic. I wrote a song with my good friend, Chris Berardo. who's a songwriter from New York. We wrote it many, many years ago. I wrote the song when I was 19. You know, and about ten years later, or more, twelve years later, it wound up in this movie. It was supposed to be this big featured scene, where kind of like the the love sequence, where the guy meets the girl and they dance and all this stuff. And that's what we thought it was going to be. It turned out to be uh, fifteen seconds on somebody's Walkman. This is how old that is. If you remember what a Walkman was, mm-hmm. the little tape player with yeah. <laughs> So what I thought was going to be this big quadraphonic scene with my music blaring out in, you know, from 50 speakers.
3: Something like
1: this. <laughs> <laughs> it was it, it was some guy's Walkman. Um, so that was my a crowning achievement and a, a great source of humility at the oh, same wow. time for me, because I thought it was going to be this huge movie with this huge scene. And it turned out to be. Um, more of a, uh, more of a, more of a of an of an art house classic, maybe we might call it that. It, it was more um, wasn't as wasn't as widely distributed as we might like. So that's what what propelled you to the A list, huh? Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I haven't had too many people stop me in the produce aisle and ask me about my contribution to Phantom of the Mall, but if you get a chance. If you get a chance to look at it, I will tell you this, and this is, I swear it's the truth. Um, Again, so many of my references are from yesteryear, but Mm -hmm. Tower Records, you know, Tower Records and Tower Video was king of the hill, right? I came out to Los Angeles when that movie came out, when the the CD, uh, I beg your pardon, the, the VHS tape came out. Wow. I went to Tower Video on Sunset Boulevard in L.A., rented it. Ran down the street, put it in my VCR, and I swear this is the truth. I fast-forwarded it to the end just to see my name in the credits first, <laughs> just to make sure it was there. and Then I went back a lot. <laughs> so.
2: Out of all your talents, Bill, which which of you enjoyed the most? Uh, writing. Such as such as riding, uh, producing, um, you know, playing music. My-
1: Yeah, I I would say writing. And the reason I'm saying that now is I don't know that I would have said that when I was 25. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: I think when I was 25, performing would have been it. You know, at 25, I was young and skinny and cute and three attributes which have left me far behind at this point in my life, but, right. you know, jumping up on stage, if, if I was playing on Friday night, I couldn't sleep on Wednesday, because I was so excited because we played we'd be playing in some new club or something. Um, as I got older. Uh, and I started hearing my songs. And I started hearing them on television. And, you know, even even the silly movie, honestly, even the silly movies, uh, when I started hearing my stuff coming back at me, I would say, wow, I love the idea of writing. I love the idea of starting with a blank notebook and a a pen. And then whether it's a week later or a year later, listening to the finished product, I've always said if someone would pay me, I could literally sit in the room I'm sitting in right now with a pen and paper and just slide a sandwich under the door every six hours. And I would Hmm. sit here all day and write and be very happy. It's, there's something very emotional for me. I think it's cleansing. I think it's empowering. I think it's all of that. And I really tap into something deep when I'm, when I'm writing. So that would be my favorite thing to do.
2: Okay. I'm going to pick your brain real quick. Uh, and I, I've asked this of several, uh, interviews and, and, I don't know, something tells me that maybe you'd have a good take on this. And I haven't really gotten the answer that satisfied me yet. But when you look at uh, music in America, you know, give it a few weeks and, you know, then it's done, uh, the hits. But you go to Europe and they're still really rocking it. I mean, people like Scotty Moore, DJ Fontana, you know, um, the older groups... Uh, the sixties and seventies, they're still big hits in Europe. Why is that? Do you think, I mean, what, what's your.
1: Um, Well, being, being a bass player who was actually, who had actually worked with DJ Fontana. Mm -hmm. um, I think there is a luster to America. That still lingers with all the problems we might have. And, you know, Nobody's going to get political on this podcast.
2: No, not at all.
1: The basic idea is this. For many, many years, people from everywhere else looked at America as the crown jewel. They wanted to dress like Americans. They wanted to sound like Americans. Mm-hmm. Even when America was trying to imitate other places, you know, when the British invasion came over. Suddenly we were cutting our hair the way they did with, mm-hmm. you know, those clothes. But... I think there's something uniquely American that, uh, that that you really can't find anyplace else, for better and worse.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I've traveled all over the world. I've never seen a place that I didn't love because I loved the uniqueness about each one of them. Mm-hmm. But I think America offers a landscape in so many different ways that um, it's very popular all over the world still. And even when uh, when you talk about. It's almost it's almost more fun to be over there. Accepting American music. Sure. Um, There are people, if anybody knows who Cliff Richards is,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, he's Elvis Mm -hmm. all over the rest of the world. Right. They just call him Cliff. We don't have to say Elvis Presley. You say Elvis, everybody knows who it is. Mm-hmm. You say Ringo, you know. Well, oh in most of the world, Cliff. But it didn't take it, it just didn't catch hold in America the way it did all over every place else. Um, I I don't I hope I'm answering your question. I, I think America has spawned so much that it's it it It's so unique in our attitude and our way that it lives other places longer than it lives here.
2: I've got that. That, that, That's probably, that's the answer. That's the answer. And that's when you were talking about your book and the, and I guess that's what really sold me on, on, uh, this interview was because I'm, I'm interested in the music history and, you know, going from your, your uh, program, uh, you know, the groove program to the book, you're, you're detailed and, and I appreciate that. I mean, there's just not anybody who is really down to earth getting, you know, explaining things and you've done that. So I've got one more question for you out of, Everybody in the world who's uh, either deceased or they're still living, who would you want to collaborate with? Who, who is your dream person, if there is anybody? Maybe a, a clone of Bill Sinke?
1: Well, we're hoping there's no clones of me. <laughs> I, th- I think one for this world is enough. <laughs> uh, there would probably be. I don't. I know you're asking for one. If I could give you four or five,
2: okay, sure,
1: but. And in no particular order, uh, James Taylor, Kenny Loggins, Paul McCartney, Stevie Wonder. Now, if I took those four and I were to add one more, I am about the biggest Hall and Oates fan, Daryl mm-hmm. Hall and John Oates.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I just I kind of love every note they ever played. I met John Oates a couple of years ago at the NAM show, if you know what the NAM show is, mm-hmm. which, uh, um, the big music convention. I met John Oates and my friends were laughing at me because I was, I was like a school kid. So when I see the range of musicality, uh, vocal styling, production, the lyric writing, if you're talking about Paul McCartney and Stevie wonder, you're, you're in pretty good company. Mm -hmm. Uh, James Taylor and Kenny Loggins are my go-to guys from like the seventies and the eighties. And I go see them every chance I get when I see them in concert. Um, so those would be my five because I really look at all of them, even though they're very different, they have those common threads of man. In three and a half minutes, they just, they just tore me up. They, they made me cry. They made me laugh. They made me dance. They made me clap. I, I listened to the lyrics and went, that's the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. Um, I, I love to be moved on that many levels and those are the the acts that I would love to collaborate so if any of them in the show uh, you know I'm I'm easy I'm easy to find so if Stevie Wonder wants to give me a call I'll, I'll make sure i'll i answer
2: <laughs> so r- wrapping it up tell us your 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 book name again and also your program
1: sure um the website is bill dot com. Once again, thank you. B-I-L-L-C-I-N-Q-U-E dot com. com If you go to the website, you can find the book, which is The Amazing Adventures of a Marginally Successful Musician. Uh, on the same website is the Groove Program, G-R-O-O-V-E. And you can take a look at that. Groove actually stands for something. I won't bore you with the details. You can, you can look at it. Uh, everything, my music, my book, the Groove program, my story, my bio, it's all, um, at BillSinke.com and I would love you to come check it out.
2: Thanks so much, Bill, for taking the time to, uh, to share with us today, your, your background and to answer the questions. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't run into anybody yet as, as, um, uh, unique. And I, I use that as, as in a good term, but uh, <laughs> you know, unique and just um, you're just Bill Sinclair. If that makes sense, you're, you're, you're the
1: man. Well, Tim, I I really appreciate you uh, having me on. I love these kind of interviews. I absolutely love podcasts. I think podcasts were made for me as opposed to me being made for them because if you're asking me to talk for forty-five minutes, I can. Do, <laughs> I think I've proven I can do that. So, thank get you it. so much for the opportunity to say hello to you and your fans.
2: Thanks. Have a good day, my friend.
1: Okay. Bye. Bye. Now.
2: Bye.
0: You've been listening to And Now You Know. From pop to doo-wop, from bluegrass to hip-hop, no matter the music, the musicians always have stories. And our passion is to bring them from their mouths to your ears. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure to like, rate, and review. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, find us on Facebook at And Now You Know. Send your emails to Tim at gmail.com. See you next time.